According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 13 is our text. Although, as I say, uh, Mark 4 has parallel account and Luke 8 has a parallel account, but those are much shorter parallel accounts. The most thorough treatment is to be found here in Matthew 13. So we will use that as our primary text of study. You can bring in the other passages for comparison sake or contrast. There's not much to contrast. Uh, and the comparisons are largely uh, confirming. And so we'll, we, we may glance at those other texts in this process, but I think the majority of our class will be coming from Matthew 13. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables. And that's the context of what we're dealing with in this chapter. Seven parables, or eight, depending on how you count his departing comments. I uh, don't count that as a parable, so I simply count seven in, uh, in this chapter. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this day and the privilege we have to assemble together. We thank you for the rain and Father, for the reminder that even as you send the rain forth to uh, nourish and replenish the earth, so too, Father, do you send your word, and it will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We pray this day that your purpose would be accomplished, that we would be built up in the faith, strengthened in the inner man. We would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Father, hedge us about with your protection. There are those that might want to come in here and cause trouble. Father, we ask for your protection there, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, parables of the kingdom from Matthew 13. We got through the introduction, which was mainly point one, and then uh, we'll get to point two this morning. We'll talk about the reasons for the parabolic teaching, and then we'll start going through parable by parable, starting with point three. So three, four, five, six, seven, uh, start dealing with the parables. Actually, under point seven, we'll tackle parables five, six, and seven, all in the same point of study. But uh, that will become obvious when we get that far. Uh, as far as last week's material goes, I don't want to review everything that's under point one. Uh, but we do have to at least recognize a little bit that's there. Uh, this is not the first parable that's recorded. We dealt with one earlier in Galilean ministry number 11, where the disciples were defended via a parable back in Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17. So this isn't the very first of the parables but it is the first lengthy discourse to utilize parabolic teaching. We also comment on the fact how Matthew is the gospel of discourse. Matthew contains the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Matthew contains the, uh, the kingdoms, uh, parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. Matthew contains uh, additional parables in Matthew 18, a great discourse passage there. Matthew records the Mount Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25. So these great discourse passages all contained in Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom. We gave you some vocabulary on parabole in the Old Testament, mashal. Um, also the nature of uh, the increasing crowds. And uh, some to say on that, the numbers will continue to increase 
to the point where he's feeding the 5,000 and then also to where he feeds 4,000. There's two separate feeding events there, both recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. The numbers start to come up. Well, we don't want to confuse the, the matters of increasing numbers on the one hand with the doctrinal acceptance or the doctrinal rejection on the other hand because we're already on the downhill side as far as the acceptance versus the rejection is concerned. The hostility has grown to the point where they're accusing him of demonism. They're calling him Beelzebub. They're saying that he's casting out demons by the power of, of Satan. And so the rejection has already crossed that tipping point. The 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 teeter-totter, as it were, is already past the point where he's no longer telling them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's now starting to give uh, the emphasis in other areas, for instance, teaching in parables, preparing his disciples for his departure, things like that. We've already crossed that tipping point. I think all too often uh, people get confused and they, they, they put the tipping point where the numbers start to fade away. That they, as long as he's growing in numbers up to the feeding of the 5,000, they say, oh, well, see, it's still on the upside of this tipping point. And it's only once they start to drop off that then they say, okay, now we've crossed the line. Now we're starting to observe the negative volition and, and the things there headed towards the cross. And that's not exactly parallel. I'm hoping that we can spot that, that we've already crossed the volitional tipping point in terms of the angelic conflict, the attacks, the criticism and all the rest. Uh, he's speaking to them in parables. And when we study today why he's speaking to them in parables, you'll understand that we've already crossed that tipping point as far as the volition of Israel is concerned. And the numbers, uh, the numbers won't reflect that for a while. See, the numbers will still grow even on the, the negative volition side of things. That should become clear as we proceed. He reveals the kingdom for the first time in mystery. And who am keen on mystery here in verse 11, Jesus answered them to you. It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And that term is significant. It will become extremely significant in the New Testament. And so it's, we're going to have to approach it from an Old Testament standpoint, realizing that we can't exa- it's not fair to take all of the New Testament theology and force it into Matthew 13. Because the full understanding of what mystery is about will not be revealed until the church is unfolded. That the full understanding of uh, the mystery age of the church, the Jews and Gentiles, one body in Christ, and everything that comes into the New Testament epistles, uh, that is still mystery, not yet revealed. But in Matthew 13, we start to get kingdom teaching and it's labeled as mystery. And this really sets the stage as, as an introduction to what musterion truly is. So even though we can bring in 1 Peter 1 and Ephesians 3 as correlating passages, and and we now today in the church age can study Matthew 13 with a full understanding of Musterion doctrine, it's not, strictly speaking, fair to, to take all of that weight of teaching and throw it immediately into this chapter. We have to handle this carefully in terms of uh, the church is still unrevealed and mystery is just now being introduced. The first concept of mystery being introduced is right here. And so we'll have more to say on that as, uh, as this unfolds. But there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it because clearly the rejection of the kingdom is going to bring about changes. It's going to bring about differences in, in what they had expected. It's going to bring about things that from the Old Testament prophetic standpoint um, were not foreseen. And that, uh, that will hopefully be obvious also. So this is the first time, though, that the term musterion has been attached to, uh, to Basileia, to the kingdom, and that, uh, that becomes important. 
And this is where the meat of last week's message comes in under point E. Due to the rejection of the Christ in his first advent, the kingdom of heaven emphasis is changed. And it's changed in this particular way. It is no longer at hand. Although the king is still present among them, he is a rejected king. And by and large, the numbers that accept him for the right reasons are few. There will be crowds that will want him as king for the wrong reasons, and we'll see illustrations of that coming up. But when the children are proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David, and uh, the children in Jerusalem are recognizing fulfillment of Zechariah and recognizing fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, they are shouted down, interestingly enough, not only by the Pharisees and and the crowds that you would expect to be hostile to Jesus Christ, but even his own disciples are bothered by the number of children that are flocking to, to Jesus. And they're trying to steer him away and trying to say, oh no, he, he doesn't have time for you guys. When, the, sadly, those children had the greatest expression of positive volition, the greatest expression of faith, the simplicity of accepting their king, and even the disciples had hang-ups with that. So that, uh, that will become a part of this study also. But it is no longer at hand. It is now not of this world in John 18:36. And the more I I dwell on this, my kingdom is not of this world, the more I've really started to dwell upon the thinking in my mind between throne of David and kingdom of heaven. Because those are not synonymous terms. They should not be interchangeable concepts. The fact that the Davidic throne was uh is legitimately going to be occupied by jesus christ is not the same as saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand there's a distinction is is the nation of israel the same as the kingdom of heaven you have to answer that for a lot of people don't even think about it but because in our time people are overlapping the church with the kingdom of heaven and that's wrong too to say that oh the church is the kingdom of heaven wrong okay um and it's just as wrong as saying that Israel is the kingdom of heaven or that the millennium is the kingdom of heaven. All right. The, so we've got to really probably at some point stop and do a, a thorough doctrinal study on what in the world is this kingdom of heaven anyway. And how is it reflected in various aspects on the earth? And, and what is the prayer about when it says thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Say, how is it that the kingdom of heaven does have a manifestation on the earth? either a literal manifestation or a mystery manifestation, because presently it's in a mystery form. All right? So the kingdom of heaven at hand, when we stop to consider what it was that the Jews were hoping for when their Messiah arrived, they were hoping for the Gentiles to be cast aside. They were hoping for the Davidic throne to be exalted. They were hoping for the earthly kingdom of Israel to have preeminence on this earth. But does that mean they were really excited about the kingdom of heaven? Okay. And so when the uh, forerunner comes and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that went far beyond any earthly expectation of the Davidic throne being reinstated. Because remember, the Davidic throne has been unoccupied since Jeconiah. The Davidic throne has been vacant since Nebuchadnezzar uh, took Jerusalem into captivity. And it has never been reseated after that. Even the Maccabean era was not a reseating of the Davidic throne. The Maccabean era was putting a Levite on a, on a throne and, and creating a priestly throne based on a, on a Levitical family, the family of, uh, of Judas Maccabeus. 
So the, uh, the uh, nature of the kingdom and the message and the emphasis is being changed. Now, is, is God's plan changed? No. Is, is his purpose been thwarted? Not for a minute. Obviously, from eternity past, he recognized that this was going to happen. And uh, Israel's national rejection of their Christ is no more a surprise to him than Adam and Eve's original sin in the Garden of Eden. None of those things that happen bother the Lord in terms of throwing his plan all to, to off kilter. It's part of his plan, part of his design. But because this has happened now, in response to this, remember the Father's the one that put into effect uh, a plan that allows angelic and human volition. So because that fork in the road has now been taken, the emphasis is now different. And I hope we can recognize that. So it is no longer an at-hand emphasis. It is now a not-of-this-world emphasis. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were so, my, my servants would be fighting. You know, he could snap his fingers and ten legions of angels show up and, and you know, he could destroy the whole world at that moment if he wanted to. So there's an emphasis. The kingdom of heaven is now limited on earth. See, it was on the verge of being revealed, unveiled, manifest. It was this close. I mean, it was on the verge of being realized on the earth. Thy kingdom come. That is, arrived and realized. Now, it's being limited to a mystery state. And we're, we're going to define that. And this, these parables define that. Matthew 13 defines what the kingdom of heaven mystery state is all about. The kingdom of heaven is now limited on earth to a mystery state until it is physically manifest at second advent. At second advent, kingdom of heaven will be physically manifest upon the earth. Physically manifest upon the earth. Featuring the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. Featuring resurrected and glorified Old Testament saints and resurrected and glorified church age saints. Kingdom of heaven on the earth. Physically manifest after the second advent. So, vocabulary. Here's a, con- here's a term and... And this is unique. I, I coined this. I don't know that if I stole it from somebody, I'm unaware of my own plagiarism. Kingdom of heaven, mystery state. And, and this should not be brand new to you because this, this term was introduced in the Through the Bible notebook. Although in, in week 43 of the Through the Bible series, we were on such a rapid pace, we taught Matthew 13 in, in 11 minutes. All right. How do you teach Matthew 13 in 11 minutes? I spent 30 minutes on Matthew 12 and realized time was running out. So we raced through chapter 13. Un- unfair. All right. Kingdom of heaven, mystery state. And I abbreviate it KOH, capital K, little O, capital H, parentheses, MS. Kingdom of heaven, mystery state. That's a term you're going to want to learn and you're going to want to chew on. The term kingdom of heaven, mystery state references the time frame between Israel's rejection of Christ an ultimate acceptance of Christ. So from the rejection, which happened during his first advent, to his acceptance, which will happen at his second advent. See, all Israel will look upon him whom they pierced. And all Israel will be saved. That is the repentance. What it will take is the, the tribulation of Israel to bring about that national repentance. Things that we'll be examining in our upcoming tribulational studies. So we're, we're talking about that time frame between the rejection and the acceptance of the Christ. And so because of that, we're overlapping a bit. 
We're overlapping a bit in terms of dispensations and stewardship. And I hope we're okay on that. Because dispensationally, kingdom of heaven, mystery, state encompasses the dispensation of the church, where we currently are, as well as the dispensation of Israel, excuse me, dispensation of Israel, age of, the, of uh, tribulation. It crosses over two stewardships there. It actually begins here, in part, even prior to the church, as he's introducing it here during the age of the Incarnation. Dispensation of Israel, age of the Incarnation. Now, I'll take the time to review this for you, and I'll do so on uh, another slideshow. where I draw across the the dispensational framework, and we're familiar with the uh, dispensation of of the Gentiles, or dispensation of man, where the earth was restored to human conditions in Genesis 1, the age of innocence, the age of conscience, and the age of government. And those various ages were the testings of mankind under the laws of divine establishment. Volition and marriage were tested under the age of innocence. Family was tested under the age of conscience. Uh, and government, uh, national government was instituted there in the age of human government. So all your laws of divine establishment were featured and tested during the, the stewardship of the Gentiles or the dispensation of man. Now this gives way to the dispensation of Israel as at the call of Abraham, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are vested with the stewardship and Israel, the Jews, became the stewards of God's spiritual plan and program upon the earth. And we're used to that. The the age of the Gentiles gives way to the dispensation of the Jews. Now, from Abraham to Moses, though, they functioned under promise. There was no law given until Moses. So from Abraham to Moses, they're under the age of promise. Still the dispensation of, of of the Jews or the dispensation of Israel. After Moses, though, it's now the age of law. There was no change of stewardship. The stewards were still the Jews. Israel still had stewardship, but it's now under the the unique circumstances and conditions of Mosaic law. During the ministry of Jesus Christ, something greater than the law was here, and so the stewardship didn't change. The stewardship was still the dispensation of Israel, but the age is now the age of the incarnation, the unique time frame where God himself was on the earth and something greater than the law was here. Now, Israel is not yet done in their stewardship. They're presently on hold while the church age is is being Uh, unfolded here on the earth the mystery of the church is now being demonstrated and so the plan for israel is on hold they've got an age coming up called the age of tribulation where the last week of daniel's 70 weeks is going to be fulfilled where the time of jacob's trouble will be accomplished where all israel will be saved because on the national basis of their national conversion they will be prepared for the coming of their king following the age of tribulation i believe the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ will, will feature a continuance of the stewardship of Israel, that it will be a part of the dispensation of Israel. And so we have five ages within the dispensation of Israel where the Jewish people have the stewardship on this earth of God's spiritual plan and program. They will be the stewards of the scriptures. They will be accountable for teaching Gentiles about the word of God, teaching Gentiles about God. So it will be a Jewish stewardship even during the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, even with Jesus Christ on the throne. And that would be a little bit different than Schaefer, Todd, or Schofield, or Theme, or some of those guys. They made the millennium a different dispensation totally. That he had Gentiles, Jews, church, and then millennium. 
saying. But I'm starting to think more and more that the millennium is the final stage of Israel's stewardship. Because there's a Jewish king on a Jewish throne in the Jewish capital of, of the Jewish nation that has a prophet-priest ministry to the Gentile nations during that thousand years. So anyway, if you want to consider the millennium a separate dispensation, go right ahead. I believe, though, that it is a stewardship, that it is an age, a thousand-year age within the overall stewardship of the Jewish people. Then, of course, the church. Broken down into the age of the apostles, the age of the local church, we understand that the age of the apostles was foundational as the New Testament was being written, as the mystery doctrine was being explained. And I cannot emphasize uh, strongly enough the nature of mystery doctrine, and we have it here in Matthew 13. Finally, after the millennium will come the dispensation of the fullness of times, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven, things on the earth. In the heavens... And on the earth, there is no more under the earth at the point where the new heavens and new earth are created and Jesus Christ has the, uh, the ultimate glory. And this is the thousand generations after the uh, millennium. All right. And there's Larkin's chart. Okay. That's what I want to show you there. So when it comes to, I don't have my, I lost my disc. I can't install my drawing software on this new computer. Um, but the kingdom of heaven mystery state encompasses that time frame from his rejection to his acceptance. And his rejection is right here immediately prior to the cross in, the, in uh, Israel's stewardship. And it will travel all the way through the church age, all the way through most of the tribulation to the very end of the tribulation where at the second advent of Jesus Christ, finally, all Israel will be saved. And they will accept their king. And that's when the kingdom of heaven will cease being a mystery state and will then uh, become a realized state. That is a physical manifestation on the earth. A thousand years of the, of the uh, millennial kingdom there of Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll let it go at that. So if we're clear on what this term represents, kingdom of heaven mystery state references the time frame between Israel's rejection of Christ and ultimate acceptance of Christ. So can we ourselves today, can we draw application from Matthew 13? You bet we can. That's right. But is Matthew 13 a church age text? No. Matthew 13 is not a church age text. Matthew 13 was written in the dispensation of Israel to a Jewish audience in the context of Israel rejecting their king. Okay? See, this is why it's so difficult. This is why um, dispensational teachers have a hard time with it and covenant guys have a hard time with it. It's not written to the church, but it applies to the church. And I hope that makes sense. Because the church is still mystery. Nobody knows anything about the church when he's giving this message. There is not a clue that the church is about to come about, that there's a new age on the way that will be neither Jew nor Gentile, but one body in Christ, a bride for the, for the king. None of that is known. That's all hidden away in mystery. But here mystery is being introduced because of the rejection of the king and the kingdom now being presented in a mystery state. All right? In a mystery state. We're accustomed to... 
uh, we're accustomed to nations being in a variety of states. What happens if a nation goes into a state of emergency? What happens if a nation goes into a state of war? What happens if a nation is a puppet state? We're accustomed to things that happen when a nation is in a different state than it typically would be found in. And that's what we have here. Because the kingdom of heaven is now in a mystery state. And hopefully that will allow us to consider the nature of these things as they're unfolding. All right. Before we start addressing any of the parables, though, we've got to find out why. Why is he even teaching in parables? Reasons for parabolic teaching. And he gives us these reasons in verses 10 through 17, also in verses 34 and 35. So let's look at it. Notice, after the first parable is given, he says, Behold, the sower went out to sow in verse 3. And he gives the parable, and he finishes the parable in verse 8. But what does he say is the conclusion of the parable? He who has ears, let him hear. Okay? Now, that's different than Revelation 2 and 3. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the local churches. There's no local churches in this, in this passage. This is a general passage written to Jewish believers in the, in the Old Testament t- uh, economy. He who has ears, let him hear. Very important that we identify that phrase here in the Gospels because it's going to come up in Revelation. But it's going to come up after the rapture of the church in Revelation. And it's going to apply to Israel in their tribulation. All right, verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? You know, what's up with this? They've been following him for two years now, almost two years. And, uh, and, and this, this parable is, is unique. Uh, you know, he had a previous one, but this one is just over the top. And there's more on the way. So Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries, notice plural, mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. To them it has not been granted. Well, why not? Doesn't God want everybody to know everything? Isn't it his desire for us to come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, it's his desire for all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if they're not saved, how are they entitled to the knowledge of the truth? If they are of the darkness and walking in the darkness, if they are children of the liar, why would they be entitled to the truth? Anyway, we'll say some more about that here in a moment. So to you it has been granted, to them it has not been granted. For whoever has... To him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. See, this, uh, this flies in the face of uh, our modern sensibilities in terms of uh, equality and all the other myths of, of uh, what our pluralistic society would, uh, would pursue. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. In other words, they have physical sight, they do not have spiritual sight. While hearing, they do not hear. They have physical hearing. Their earthly ears can hear the, the vibrations of his earthly vocal cords. But they do not have spiritual ears to apprehend the truth of what he's communicating. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, see, this is fulfillment of messianic prophecy. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. 
with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear it with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. See, if you have eyes to see, ears to hear, which produces the heart to understand, then the repentance takes place. Unfortunately, that's not to be the case with this generation. They will crucify their Christ and demand that his blood be upon them and upon their children. And in 70 A.D., that blood will be exacted in a horrible, horrible fashion. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Verse 17, for truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, in that case, those weren't unbelievers to whom it was not granted. Those were believers to whom it was not granted. So we start, in addition to introducing the aspect of mystery, we're also introducing the aspect that in the progressive nature of God's revelation, certain things are withheld until a particular generation is prepared to receive that. And it is the apostles of the Lamb that are granted to receive the mysteries of the kingdom. Jeremiah couldn't get it. Isaiah couldn't get it. Daniel couldn't get it. Job couldn't get it. We know that Noah, Daniel, and Job were the greatest of Old Testament believers. But they were not entitled to receive this message. It was reserved for the apostles of the Lamb. After some more parables are given, down to verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. The things hidden. That's the nature of mystery. It has been hidden, but now it has been revealed because in the keeping with the Father's purpose, this is the moment for the things hidden and now be brought into the light. Okay? And so the, uh, the apostles here during the age of the incarnation have the privilege to have these things hidden now come to their understanding while still being hidden to those without the spiritual eyes to see. So it's a great preview for what the church age is going to be all about because in the dispensation of the church, we have a load of mystery then that's unfolded. In fact, the age itself is called the, the economy of mystery, the dispensation of mystery. So three subpoints under this. Subpoint A, the Lord communicates in parables so that unbelieving Israel will not comprehend his message. The Lord communicates in parables so that unbelieving Israel will not comprehend his message. And that's, uh, that's remarkable. It demonstrates that as a part of divine discipline, in application of divine discipline, uh, upon closed ears comes even uh, even more withholding of truth. That's a giving over into darkness as a intensification of that divine discipline. In some cases, it'll come upon an entire land when the Lord says, I will send a famine upon the land, not a famine of bread, not a famine of food, but a famine of my word. When God gives a land over to a doctrinal famine where there are no more teaching pastors, where the word of God is not being taught, where local church lampstands cannot be found. 
for, uh, for any Christian family to raise up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. An entire land can be given over to this spiritual famine. Something to consider. And so here we find the application of a divine discipline in response to their hardness of heart, in response to their own closing of their own ears. See, it's not that different from when he hardened Pharaoh's heart because before he hardened Pharaoh's heart, what had Pharaoh done? Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. And so Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The Lord further hardened Pharaoh's heart. See, as, as these things happen. And, and this part of his sovereignty. It's part of his righteousness and his justice. He is free to do this. So he's communicating in parables so that unbelieving Israel will not comprehend his message. Now that in itself becomes interesting. That in itself becomes interesting. Again, let's read this. I will open my mouth in parables. Um, let's see. Verse 15, I think, is the key thing. And we'll go back to the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah 6 and from Psalms. And we'll see this. But in verse 15, Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. So the, the aspect is, is that if he wasn't teaching in parables... If he spoke to them in plain language, could they have an understanding? So he's speaking to them in parables so that they don't have an understanding. Right? Because otherwise they would see, they would hear, they would understand. Apart from the, uh, well, the aspect is that their heart has become dull, so they've closed their ears, they've closed their eyes. So, in any event, this, uh, this then becomes important. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Realize this was not a surprise. It's not a surprise at all. In fact, it's kind of typical for the nation of Israel. This is a great uh, chapter here where Isaiah gets uh, a, a vision of the heavenly uh, holiness of God and the the seraphim, he gets a glimpse of what we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So I would encourage you to read through uh, verses 1 through 7 there as a preview for what we're going to deal with in Revelation. But then verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, or here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. And here's what he's told to go do. He's being sent forth in a prophetic ministry, one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And here's what he's told. Here's his message. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. <laughs> Keep on looking, but do not understand. See, Isaiah, just like, much like Jeremiah, much like Ezekiel, they're going to be faithful prophets, but their audience is going to hate their ministry. Absolutely hate their ministry. Isaiah, if traditions are accurate, Isaiah was drawn and quartered. Drawn and quartered. In other words, each arm each leg tied to four separate horses and horses run the opposite directions and that's a rough thing to deal with and then as your arms and legs are ripped out of their sockets and you're left there to bleed to death as a head with a torso it's uh nasty well that's isaiah here he is here's his message 
Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Isaiah is proclaiming that Israel will be placed under God's divine discipline where they will be hardened. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. See, what is it going to take to soften or break that hard heart of Israel? See, they're hardened as they reject their Christ. And they will continue in a hardened state throughout the mystery of the church. Paul describes this in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Describes that how at the present time that this hardening has taken place in the nation of Israel. See, there's still a remnant that gets saved. Paul himself was a Jewish believer. Others would get saved. But as a nation, the vast majority of Jewish people would be hardened throughout the church. Throughout the tribulation. Because it takes tribulation to break that hardness of their heart. So I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. And the land is utterly desolate. You know what's going to bring that about? The abomination. The abomination that causes desolation. It's going to take the great tribulation of Israel to bring about the, uh, the humbling, the softening, the preparing of their heart for their king. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it and it will again be subject to burning like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. That's a powerful message because it goes beyond first advent and looks at the, the utter hell on earth that it's going to take at second advent to prepare Israel to receive their king. Over in Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. See, listening is a matter for volitional obedience. You have to make the decision that you're going to humble yourself and receive what God has for you. And you must do that every time you come to Bible class. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which, have, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. So we have a privilege to be able to take what has been revealed to the fathers, that is to previous generations, what he's telling to our generation, to relate them to the next generation. And it may in fact come about that a generation to come will receive information that we were not entitled to. Asaph here was a contemporary of David. He didn't know anything about mystery doctrine. He didn't know anything about the things that were yet to come. What a privilege. Uh, verse 5, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. In other words, there's a progression from the elders to the very generation that he's talking to. But then generations are still coming beyond that. 
that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. That takes all the way down through verse 8. I should have lengthened the quote instead of 1 through 4 to 1 through 8. would have been more fitting for this context. So when he, when he starts teaching them in parables, and when he starts quoting Isaiah, these, these Pharisees better get a clue real quick. <laughs> all right? And because many of them had memorized Isaiah. Many of them had memorized the whole, the whole Old Testament. And so when he starts citing those passages... And the idea of, of until cities are desolate and laid waste and those kind of things, that should have been a huge warning. I'm sure for Nicodemus it was. I'm sure for Joseph of Arimathea it was. Those are the two Pharisees we know that got saved. And, and for those who have an ear, he's, he's telling them. In plain language, he's telling them that this wrath is on the way, that the nation is rejecting their Christ. To those without an ear, they're just hearing simple little idiot stories about seed that was sown by a road and seed that was sown on rocky soil and seed that was sown on thorny soil. And they're just, you know, thinking, ho-hum, what's that about? You know, this Galilean, uh, quote-unquote, this Galilean rabbi is just telling some goofy little stories here. And they don't have the ears to hear. and They don't realize how serious the wrath of God is about to descend on this nation. Because they're going to crucify their Christ. That's why he's communicating to them in parables. Now, there's some good that comes out of this under point B. Unbelieving Israel will become jealous. Unbelieving Israel will become jealous at believing Jews and Gentiles in the church. Unbelieving Israel will become jealous at believing Jews and Gentiles in the church. Now this looks ahead a little bit, but I want to do that. I want to, we've gone back now to Isaiah and we've seen some things uh, in Psalms. Now we can look ahead and see what's going to be the, the result of this. That uh, he's speaking them in parables. Their eyes have been shut. Their ears have been closed. Their heart has been hardened. They've been given over to this wrath. Desolations are on the way. But while they're still on the way, what is the, what is the, the working of the Lord going to be? Well, it's not known in the Old Testament. It's not known in the Gospels. It's only made known as the mystery of the church is unfolded. And Paul reveals it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So we turn to Romans 10 for this context. And I hope you're familiar with Romans 9, 10, and 11. They're the chapters that, that absolutely crush any concept of replacement theology. If, if you've got friends that think that somehow God has scrapped his plan for Israel and he's replaced Israel with the church, you know, that the church is New Testament Israel or that Israel was Old Testament church and, and now, you know, that there, are, there is no millennial kingdom on the way and Jesus won't sit on the throne of David and, and they totally replace all the Old Testament with the church uh, these chapters bury that, absolutely bury that. And he talks about his kinsmen according to the flesh at the beginning of chapter 9. And he says, I could, 
uh, wish that I myself would be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says if he could save Israel, he would spend eternity in the lake of fire. That's what he says, that he would be accursed, separated from Christ, that he would voluntarily go to the lake of fire for all eternity if it would bring about Israel's national conversion. And uh, the kinsman according to the flesh. So that introduces chapter 9. You see how serious this is in 9, 10, and 11. We get to chapter 10 and verse 19. Now, in chapter 10, we're describing the fact that, that they're not thrown away, that God's not abandoning them, that, uh, that they need to accept Christ by faith, but they, God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. So it says in... Uh, Verse 19 here, well, there's the fact that even though they are the chosen nation, each one individually still has to place their faith in Christ. And uh, not all Israel is Israel. The fact that there are Jewish unbelievers always have been, that the issue is faith in Christ. So um, we have in verse uh, 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? We ought to be burdened for the Jewish people in our evangelism. Will they, uh, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You want to have beautiful feet? They've got to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. If you are a ready evangelist, you have beautiful spiritual feet. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah was convinced that nobody was listening to anything he had to say, even though he was the great prophet that said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they indeed? They have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, surely Israel did not, did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. Now, did Moses understand that he was talking about the church? No, Moses didn't have a clue that he was talking about the church. But that which is not a nation. What are we? We're a heavenly people, but are we a nation? We're a people for his own possession. We are a holy race. Okay. And if we are a nation, our nation is not of this world because our citizenship is in heaven. We are that which is not a nation. You know, we go to the Philippines and you've got a bunch of Filipinos over there and they're saved. Guess what? God doesn't care that they're Filipino believers and we're American believers or you go to Kiev and there's Ukrainian believers or wherever you go. It doesn't matter what your earthly nationality is. You're in Christ. You're a heavenly citizen. And so that which is not a nation is provoking jealousy. And Moses prophesied that this would happen. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. See, the, the powerful thing is, is that in the, if you think about the Old Testament having been written, every single book was written by a Jew. Every single book of the Bible was written and was sent to the Jewish people. What was the advantage of the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And there was not one Gentile nation. Now, Gentile nations were blessed. Babylon had a wonderful Daniel to minister to them. 
Persia had a wonderful Ezra or a wonderful Nehemiah to minister to them and Esther. All right. Egypt had a great Joseph, a tremendous godly man in Joseph to minister to them. But Egypt never received a book of the Bible that they were entrusted with to disseminate to the nations. Israel received 39 books of the Old Testament or 22 Hebrew books of the Old Testament that they were to disseminate to the nations. Not one Gentile nation was given a book of the Bible to disseminate. And so by that which is not a nation, a nation without understanding, will I, will I anger you? Not one Gentile nation received the word of God. But now all Gentile nations, all Gentiles, Jews together, can be one body in Christ, and they're being given books of the Bible. The church is going to usher in the New Testament with 27 books to provide information that will uh, be a blessing to Israel in the tribulation, let me tell you. <laughs> All right. And so you see what this is supposed to accomplish. I will make you jealous. I will make you jealous. And it's interesting. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. When, when the, the turning to the Gentiles, and that's why it was so tumultuous in the book of Acts, why so many, even of the Jewish believers there in the early church, were not exactly warm and fuzzy yet with this idea of the, of the Gentiles coming in and being fellow heirs and being, uh, uh, you know, part of the body. They weren't quite ready to handle that. So, uh, are they rejected? Chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Strongest language imaginable. It's just the outworking of his plan. It's what Jesus Christ said. It's what Isaiah said. This hardening has taken place. And it will take desolations to bring them back on a national basis. Individually, of course, Jews can get saved. Paul was saved. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So much for the lost tribes. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? And so there, there is a plan. In verse 5, there comes to be at the present time a remnant. There's a remnant. Jews can still get saved. Of course they do. They become a part of the church. They become a part of the church. And that provokes the jealousy. Um, let's bring it on down. Verse 8. Well, notice verse 7. Um uh, the rest were hardened. Those who were chosen obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. That's the partial hardening. Isaiah spoke of it. Christ spoke of it. He, he announced it when he started speaking to them in parables. He announced to the nation that they were now on this course. And it would take tribulation to get them out of this course. So... Uh, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Now, is it a total fall? Is it a total collapse? You know, is, it, is there ever a time that you can stumble and it's just you can't, get, you can't confess and get back up again? Well, on a personal basis, I guess there is. There's the sin of the death. But on a national basis, when God has made national promises to Israel, there's never a time that they can stumble for the final time and not get back up again. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Eternally fall. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles 
to make them jealous. We have the jealousy stated again. Moses uh, declared it, and now here it's coming up in, in chapter 10 and 11, the aspect of this jealousy. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? See, when you, when you consider the blessings we have in the church, the blessings the church has as a consequence to Israel's national rejection and their failure. And it's indescribable. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Consider the blessings to the church as a consequence of Israel's failure. What will the worldwide blessings be to Gentiles as a consequence of Israel's acceptance in the millennial kingdom? Remember, we're, we're in the mystery state. We're after the rejection, but before the acceptance. And if the blessings we Gentiles get in the aftermath of rejection is as powerful as it is here in the church, can you imagine what Gentile believers, what believers in the millennial kingdom are going to have in store for them in the aftermath of Israel's acceptance of their Christ? When the kingdom of Israel becomes the priest nation to the Gentile nations of this earth, and every Jewish believer is a, is a, a prophet by gift. How powerful is that going to be to the Gentile nations of this earth during the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ? So that, that verse in verse 12, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? That's a powerful verse. And it's even more exciting to consider that the present jealousy the present jealousy is going to be part of, it's going to be the, the, the first element of two things that have come together to bring about national repentance. The first part is this jealousy. The second part is going to be uh, unparalleled wrath <laughs> that comes together, which is point three, or point C. Ecclesiastical jealousy, that's jealousy of the church. Ecclesiastical jealousy and tribulational affliction will work together for the good. Remember, all things work together for good. They will work together for the good of Israel's national salvation. Ecclesiastical jealousy that they have right now. That God would be working through Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles together as a body in Christ. The fact that a Jew today who accepts Christ is no longer a Jew. Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. I stopped being a Gentile in September of 1973. Yeah, I'm not a Gentile anymore. I'm a part of the bride. I'm a chosen race. You don't get to choose your race. <laughs> Generally speaking, biologically speaking, you're the race of whatever your parents were. Say, or if they were different races, then you're a blend. But whatever the case, you don't get to choose that. Biologically, you're a product of, you know, the chromosomes coming together. But when you accept Christ, you are a new race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a heavenly people that which was not a nation. And now we're a body in Christ. So ecclesiastical jealousy and tribulational affliction will work together for the good of Israel's national salvation. Romans 11, 25 through 27. Further down in this chapter. See, the day is coming when all Israel will be saved. When as a nation, they will accept Jesus as the Christ. For I do not want you to be 
For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now that phrase, fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that overlaps a bunch of dispensations too. That's like our term dispensation of heaven mystery state. It's a time span that crosses dispensations. It crosses other things. Fullness of the Gentiles began when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. It began when the Davidic throne was vacated. It began when the Jewish nation was first placed under Gentile dominion and they've been under it ever since. From Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. They're still under Rome in a lot of ways. So the uh, fullness of the Gentiles, that ends at Second Advent. That ends when Jesus Christ is seated on the Davidic throne and Israel is exalted above all the nations. So all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He's the deliverer. And it's going to take that tribulation to bring this about. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It will happen. But it's going to take hell on earth to make it happen. So this is the reason for the parabolic teaching. All right, point three then is parable number one, the parable of the sower. It's given in verses three through nine. It's explained in verses 18 through 23. And I think we'll stop here. Rather than try to launch it. We've got two minutes left. <laughs> so how many times have I gone over? I think I can. I won't feel guilty about ending class two minutes early. <laughs> if the deacons want to dock my pay for two minutes. I guess they can do that. We'll quit two minutes early. We're at a stopping point. Um, but we will come back to the parable of the sower next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. The parable is described in verses 3 through 9. But then the explanation is given in 18 through 23. And we have the benefit of both paragraphs there to be able to read them both, compare them both, and gain a full understanding of what this is about. So we'll, uh, we'll handle that next week. Any questions? Anything at all? I can use up two minutes in questions and then they won't have to dock my pay for anything. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, for the... Uh, promises of God which are eternal for the reminder that you cannot abandon Israel father you have to have a plan for them because you you gave them unconditional eternal promises and if if that's all just thrown out the window and uh, replaced with uh, the church then father you're a liar and uh, if that's the case then we're not saved either because what would stop you from throwing out your promises to us but father we know uh, you can't throw out any promises You've made them. You will keep them. They are eternal. Our salvation is eternal. Israel's covenant is eternal. The throne of David is eternal. Father, these things will take place. We thank you, though, that you've designed a plan in such a manner that it brings the maximum glory to your son. And we thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. In his name we pray. Amen.